Good morning, Providence Road. It's good to see you. Uh, hope everybody had a good spring break. Glad you're back in town. Um, this time last week, we were what you might call comfortably full, in the sense that you could lay down and have plenty of room. Um, so, <laughs> a few more, few more people here. So that's good. Uh, if this is your uh, your first time at Providence Road, welcome. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're really glad that you're here today. Um, <clears throat> all right. So today we are continuing our study in the book of Romans. And so today we're going to focus at the end of chapter 6 and then the beginning of chapter 7. So if you have a Bible and want to go ahead and turn there, that's kind of where we'll be today. We'll begin with uh, chapter 6, verse 15. Okay? Okay, listen. Um, if we can be honest, uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Romans can be tough to digest, okay? We are in the, the middle of some very heavy, very heady, and very dense material, okay? Now, there, there are portions of Scripture that just soar, okay? We have poetry and narrative that just resonate with your soul, and then there are portions of Scripture that kind of read like the user's manual for your DVD player. Um, I'm willing to bet that none of us in here had many of the verses in 5, 6, and 7 read at your wedding. Okay, um, These weren't the headline verses at uh, your youth camps growing up. Um, I was talking with, uh, with Drew uh, this morning, and we were texting this week about the, uh, the set list for today. I was like, listen, man, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you in terms of themes because there's not a ton of songs written about being slaves to righteousness and the ceremonial use of the law, the Old Testament. So I don't know, just sing about Jesus or whatever. And he's like, all right, that sounds good. So, so we got that figured out. Just Hillsong just never got around to writing that album, right? So uh, the verses that we're going to look at today are in many ways uh, blue-collar building block verses, Okay, um, these are the verses that kind of provide the, the logical foundation uh, for many of the great truths that our faith rests on. Right, so the, these are not exactly well-known verses, but they are incredibly important verses. Okay, uh, so we're going to have to tackle some some complicated issues this morning. We're going to have to weed to, to climb into some theological weeds a little bit. Um, now, <clears throat> with that being said, I'd like to make a disclaimer. At the beginning, um, it's been my experience that when we deal with texts like these, those that can be um, kind of nuanced and, and technical, um, there are usually two responses. Okay, uh, one is to simply kind of glaze over and uh, listen. I'm out. Um, I'm not interested in going to seminary. I don't want to be a theologian. Y'all just call me when we get the good stuff, right? Um, and the problem with that is that I've almost never seen that person have anything more than a very shallow faith. Okay? If, you, if you give yourself permission to kind of skip over parts of the Bible that you don't like or that you don't deem is important, what eventually will happen is the theological, theological equivalent of eating Pop-Tarts and Skittles your whole life. Okay? It's not exactly a recipe for a healthy diet, that's not autobiographical at all. I'm super healthy. Um, 
but that's not exactly a recipe for healthy faith either, right? Um, in fact, what, what eventually you'll be tempted to do is to create a worldview or create a religion that values what you value or that likes just what you like and ends up looking exactly like you look. And at the end of the day, you're going to end up worshiping yourself and not the Jesus of the Bible. Okay, So it's a very, it's a very dangerous thing. Okay, on the other hand, on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, um, if you find yourself geeking out over theological nuance, um, if you love majoring in the minor things, then my fear for you is that you're more worried, you're more interested in sounding like a Christian than being one. Okay? Um, pastorally, um, gently, I want to remind you that Jesus was always irritated with the guys that really, really valued the lofty academic rhetoric of theology, but had no time to help people. Okay, um, so we don't we don't need people like that. Okay, um, it's like it's like these doctors that are brilliant and well educated, um, but have terrible bedside manner. Right, like they're fascinated by the science but then they're completely oblivious that there's a room full of sick and stressed out people that really need their help, okay? Um, so don't, don't be that guy, okay? That's called being a Pharisee, and Jesus usually had harsh words for those, for those people, okay? So, so the goal of today's sermon is, is not for you to simply acquire more Christian background information, okay? The goal of today's sermon is to help you plant really, really deep roots so that you have a genuine confidence that the God of the Bible loves you. Okay. And in addition to that, that you have really deep, genuine confidence in, the, in your equipping to share that with the people in your life. Okay. So that's, that's what we're going after today. Okay. Because the fact of the matter is, there's just really, really sick and stressed people out there that need some good news. Okay. Um, so, just to recap, not interested in your ability to write a position paper on the three-tiered use of the law in the Old Testament theocracy. Not, not what we're going after today, okay? Um, we're more interested in you having a firm foundation to stand on when you talk to your coworker about Jesus this week. All right? Does that sound good? Everybody on the same page? Excellent, because now we actually need to talk about the three-tiered use of the law in the Old Testament theocracy, okay? So, before we do that, let's pray. And then we'll jump into our text this morning. Jesus, thank you for your word. And thank you for this time this morning. And God, I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, exactly what you would have for us this morning. God, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. <clears throat> so before we get into Romans, I want to quickly reference another letter that Paul wrote to kind of give us some context for what we're going to read today. In, uh, in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to a discouraged young pastor, um, and he's basically encouraging him to keep plugging away, to keep hanging in there, okay? To keep, keep the main thing the main thing. And in doing so, he says something really interesting. He says, he says to Timothy, he says, do your best to correctly divide the word of truth. Do your best to correctly divide the word of truth, okay? Now, what most versions of the Bible interpret that to mean is to, to accurately handle the Bible, right? 
Um, meaning, meaning, when you're teaching the Bible, don't be sloppy, right? Be, be precise, be, be accurate, right? And that's, that's certainly the correct interpretation. That's what Paul meant. But I think this word divide has an interesting connotation to it, okay? Uh, Martin Luther, the, the, the great theologian and reformer, he understood this passage to mean not only to accurately teach the Bible, but to literally divide it to literally separate the Bible into two theological categories, okay? And that's the theological categories of law and gospel, okay? Law and gospel. Both, both are good, both are necessary, both are biblical, but what they are not is interchangeable, okay? And what worried Luther, and, and, and I think he's... I think he's right about this, is virtually all of our misconceptions about God come from incorrectly labeling these two categories. So, to paint in very broad strokes, um, the law, the law basically says this. um, The law is, these are God's non-negotiable required standards for living. Okay? These are God's required standards for living. All right, and these standards will lead you to freedom and joy. Right? They're for your good. However, there are very real punishments for not living up to these standards. Okay? That's, that's the law. On the other hand, the gospel, in light of the law, says, listen, so our, our default position, right, our, our spiritual reality is that we have all fallen short of these standards, okay? That's just the way things are. We have not kept our end of the deal, so to speak. Therefore, we're kind of under punishment, okay? Our, our default position is under a penalty for not living up to these standards. So the gospel says that here comes Jesus, and he fulfills all of these standards on your behalf. Right? He was perfectly obedient in your place, in addition to that, he absorbs all of the punishment that you had coming to you because you didn't fulfill the standards. All right? that's, that's the gospel. All right? So the gospel only makes sense in light of the law. Okay? What Jesus accomplished is only good news if you are aware that there's bad news. Right? So, so here's the danger in confusing law and gospel. Right? If you... If you lower the bar, or, or if, you, if you take away from the law, you, you diminish the requirements of God. And what, you are, what you're doing, what you're essentially saying, is that God is not good, He is not wise, He's not holy, He's not right. It's called blasphemy. It's a very, very arrogant position to have. Listen, you and I as creatures rather than the Creator simply do not have the right to do that. One of the perks of being Almighty God is that you get to make the rules for how your universe is going to be run. Um, You just don't get to decide that some of these rules don't apply to you. I hear hear people say stuff like this all the time. Like, listen, if that's what God's like, I, I don't want to have anything to do with Him. If that's what God's like, I'm just, I'm, I'm out. I'm not really interested. As if there are other options, right? 
You can't just decide that you don't like gravity and therefore it doesn't apply to you. That's ridiculous. Okay? Now, I know we live in a world where there are things like alternative facts, but biblically, that's what's called stupid. <laughs> right? That doesn't, you, you can't live in that reality. That doesn't work. That doesn't hold water. Right? You, can't, you can't say, listen, you guys that are into breathing oxygen, that's fine. If that's what you want to do, you go breathe oxygen. But for me, I'm more of a nitrogen guy. Like, that doesn't work. You, you and I do not have the option to talk like that. You're living in a, in a fake reality, and that is taking away from the law. Okay? That's taking away from the law, and you can't, you can't do that. So in the same way that you can't subtract from the law, you also can't add anything to the gospel. Okay? Because by definition, adding something to the gospel implies that it was incomplete or ineffective to begin with. All right, so no, no one gets to say, all right, Jesus, thank you for that boost, but, but I'll, I'll take it from here. Right? You, you, can't, you can't say that as if, as if your personality or your resume is strong enough to carry you over the hump. Right? That's, that's not how this works. You see, all right, either the gospel is sufficient for salvation or it's not. It's either salvation... It's either sufficient for salvation or it's not. What it can't be is mildly helpful. That's not a category the gospel can, can exist in. Okay? That's why the good news is news. It's not advice. So correctly distinguishing law and gospel is, is huge for believers. Okay? Now, this, uh, this raises an interesting question. If Jesus has already fulfilled the law, right, both in the requirements of the law and the punishment of the law, and we're not under that system anymore, and we're under the gospel, we're under grace, then shouldn't we be able to do kind of whatever we want? That is the question that Paul is dealing with in our text this morning. Okay, So let's read Romans uh, 6.15, and we'll go through the beginning of uh, chapter 7. <clears throat> Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who are once slaves of sin have become obedient to the heart of the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you, were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to, leads to sanctification and in the end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, 
that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is bound to, to, to by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. While we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law, we were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. <sighs> okay. So that is a lot of stuff packed into 14 verses. Okay. Uh, there have quite literally been volumes upon volumes written out to tease all of the details in this section of Scripture. All right. But, uh, but given our time limits and, again, the fact that our goal is to be effective missionaries in our neighborhoods and not necessarily systematic theologians, um, I just want to make three points, and then uh, and then we'll be done this morning. Um, one point about the law, one point about human nature, and one point about the overwhelming patience and generosity of our God. All right. So first, uh, the law. Um, at the beginning of of verse uh, chapter seven, uh, Paul says to his readers in Rome that. Um, that he assumes that they kind of have a working understanding of the law. Okay, so so we need to under, understand how the law works uh, for our personal growth. If you're a Christian, you should know what's in your Bible. Um, but also, um, as missionaries, in a time and place where this concept is um, often distorted and, and misunderstood, you need to know how to speak clearly into, into our context. Okay. Um, a, a very common critique of Christianity, especially um, in the United States, is that Christians pick and choose which laws they want to keep from the Old Testament and which laws they want to ignore from the Old Testament. Right? Uh, so we're accused of being pretty, pretty chill about women covering their heads and eating shellfish, but we draw a very hard uh, line in the sand when it comes to homosexuality, for example. Um, and to, to the outside world, this feels very arbitrary. This feels very inconsistent, right? Um, and in part, this is the motivation behind the question that Paul is dealing with in verse, verse 15. And uh, the basis of Paul's response is that there are different uses for the law. There's different aspects of the law, okay? So uh, quickly, I just want to run through uh, the uses of the law, all right? The first, the first use is ceremonial, okay? And this means that the law was used as a, as a public teaching tool, all right, for the people of God, all right? So this, this expressed, uh, uh, this taught the people about God's holiness, His expectations, the seriousness of not meeting those expectations. Um, and then the law obviously included sacrifices to atone for the shortcomings of not meeting these expectations, right? So, so in short, uh, the law was used to communicate to the people of God that God is holy, you are not, 
And therefore, there needs to be some sort of mediator. There needs to be some sort of helper uh, to make us acceptable before, before God. All right? so, so all of the ceremonial, all of the, the rituals, all of the pomp and circumstance was all used as a teaching tool to express these ideas to, to God's people. Okay? All right, the, second, the second use of the law is civil. All right, civil. Um, and this is very similar to our laws today. All right, these, these, are, these are the basic guidelines um, that make society livable. All right? um, I think we can all agree um, that murder and lying and theft, these things should be generally frowned upon, yes? Um, and there should be penalties, uh, there should be consequences for when these things are, are, are violated. All right? So the civil use of the law is to kind of keep at bay evil and chaos, all right? This just makes the world livable, okay? um, the third, The third use of the law is, is moral, okay? So God says to his people, I am putting certain restrictions on what you can and can't do, all right? And this is for your own, your own good. Uh, listen, a, a common misconception about God is that he is this, this jerk cop Right, that is just randomly making up rules so that he can bust you on them later. And that's not how the Bible describes the Lord. He is, he is a loving Father that locks the cabinet under the sink so that you and I don't get in there and drink poison. Right? His rules are for our good, whether we realize it or not. Right? So what Paul is getting at is that um, that we are no longer under certain aspects of these of this law. Okay, uh, we're not under the ceremonial aspect of the law anymore because Jesus has satisfied all the requirements. Okay, not only has He satisfied all the requirements of the law, but He has also absorbed all of the punishment that came when we didn't satisfy the requirements. Okay, um, and this is why Paul inserts this marriage metaphor at the beginning of chapter seven. Right? When Jesus died, so did our obligation to the law. Right? So in the same way that a widow is no longer bound to her dead husband, we are no longer bound to that original covenant, that, that ceremonial use of the law. Okay? All right, furthermore, we're, we're no longer under the civil aspect of the law. Okay? And this is a little more straightforward, right? And, and here's why. In the Old Testament, the people of God, the, the, the church, so to speak, was also a nation, okay? So in that system, at that time, a sin against God was also a crime against the state, okay? That's just simply not true of the church anymore. Right? We, we are scattered missionary families who live in all different nations under all different types of government, okay? Right? So, so religion and government are no longer the same thing. Therefore, we're not under the civil aspect of the law. Right? So this is why if you eat shellfish, we're not going to throw rocks at you, right? which is uh, appropriate, I would argue. Um, so, um, so in a ceremonial sense, the law is null and void because everything we need to know about God, we now know through Jesus. Right? The law is also null and void in a civil sense because we no longer live in a theocracy. Right? Where religion and government are not the same thing anymore. Right? But the law is still intended for us in a moral sense. 
right? because it still provides the appropriate restrictions to keep us from going crazy and drinking poison under the sink. Okay? Um, so Paul, Paul is saying, should, should we sin now because we're under a new system? Absolutely not, right? Now, the law doesn't apply to our salvation, but it still applies to our joy. It's for our good, okay? Even, even when it doesn't feel like it. Um, I have had, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with college students over the last several years about sexuality. And at the end of the day, most of those conversations are not about sexuality. They're about what God can and cannot tell you what to do. It's an authority question. It's not a sexuality question. But the restrictions about sexuality or anything else, really, it's for your good. Okay. Probably nothing has helped me understand this point more than becoming a, a father. Um, I have a little boy who is almost two years old. And I have a little girl who will be here in um, five days. So you can pray for Team Brister. We are, have our hands full. Um, so sometimes I make Bo so, so mad. Okay? Because I won't let him do stuff like stand on the stove while we're cooking. Right? Or let him jump out of a moving vehicle. Right? Think really restrictive things of this nature. Right? Won't let him have peanut butter, which is the one thing that will send him to the hospital in the entire world. Right? Um, he is convinced at times that I am an anti-fun, lame, loser dad. And I have nothing better to do than to just ruin his toddler day. Right? When in reality, the exact opposite is true. The exact opposite is true. And he has no idea that even when he is at his worst, I mean worst, like throwing green beans at mom and throwing mega tantrum, worst, that I would still lay down in traffic for that little kid. I think sometimes we just need to trust that we are 2D people in a 3D world and we just don't quite have the perspective that we think we do. And we just need to trust our dad when he says stuff like, Sexuality only works this way. Or coveting truly won't make you happy. Or vengeance will not lead to satisfaction. Like things like this, we just need to trust him. Okay. That transitions us to our, our next point, which is that it's basic human nature to be a slave to something. I don't care how type A you are. I don't care how alpha you are, how high achiever you are. You will be a slave to something or someone. Right? That's just part of human nature. Okay? Everyone has a basic instinct to attach themselves to something bigger than they are. Right? And this could be a sorority. This could be a basketball team. This could be a political party. This could be your bank account. This could be literally a million different things. Uh, but we all, we all do it. So what verses 16 through 23 are saying is that you can fight against this and you can end up serving uh, lesser masters right, that are just going to lead you to be ashamed and ultimately lead you to death. Or you can just embrace this instinct 
and serve the one person who actually has authority to tell you what to do. And not only who has the authority, but who actually cares about you, who actually has your good in mind. All these other masters are going to let you down. Always. Every time. He's the only one that won't. So my, my last point is one of the things that, that I was a slave to, that I held as an idol, uh, was, uh, was football. And um, saying that out loud sounds so stupid. Um, but that's how idols work. Because at the time, they don't feel stupid. At the time, they feel like the most important thing in the world. Um, idols tend to be kind of like old yearbook photos. Right? At the time, they're like, that's a really good idea. But only after a season of like reflection, you're like, what, 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 why, why, why did I wear that? You know? Um, so I was, um, uh, as an athlete growing up and I was able to play football in, in college and I wanted to become a coach. That's kind of where my career trajectory was heading. And so my entire world revolved around practice and watching film and weight room and protein shakes and all that weird stuff, right? I, I, I lived and breathed that stuff. And kind of being locked into that world for a while um, kind of warped my understanding of, of God in many ways. And my, uh, my, my default view of God what he, is that he was like a really, really harsh coach. And it wouldn't matter if I threw seven touchdowns. He was only interested in critiquing the one incompletion that I threw. Like that was my, that's how I view, I viewed God. And I developed this skewed understanding of law and gospel. Because I correctly understood that God is perfect and that he requires perfection and that I am not perfect. I very vividly understood all of those things. Um, so my view of the Christian life was that God was just really going to be mad at me until I got my stuff sorted out. And so I geared up to endure Christianity, not to enjoy it, just to get through it. Because God didn't really love me. He was only interested in my improvement. So listen, if you, if you don't hear anything else, today. I want you to hear this. God is not like that. He's not. I'm 33 years old and I haven't played football in a long time and I'm a professional pastor and I'm still learning this. Is He holy and scary and require perfection? Yes. Yes. But that's why He sent Jesus. All that scary holiness, all that required perfection fell on Jesus, not me. Not you. He didn't send Jesus out of anger. He sent Him out of love. I want you to listen to what the Father says about you this morning. This is from Isaiah 62. 
Um, Isaiah 62.3 says this. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall, not, shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. Listen to this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. All of the wrath, all of the holiness, all of the perfection that was coming your way because you didn't live up to your end of the deal got put on Jesus. And the only thing that remains now, the only thing that's left over is that God rejoices over you. He rejoices over you. He's a good, good father. And he rejoices over his kids. Okay? He's not mad anymore. Jesus absorbed all of that for you. I pray that that encourages you because it encourages me and I'm still trying to figure out how to work that from my head down into my heart. That's good news. That's good news. We can't bear the weight of anything else. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, for texts that are very nuanced and require a lot of background and um, teasing out. But we're thankful that, um, that you have a system in place where you as Drew mentioned earlier, you're, you're not just gracious and you're not just kind, but you also value justice and you don't let uh, sin uh, stand unjudged, but you, you somehow are both righteous and gracious. And so we're incredibly thankful for Jesus who, who makes those distinctions possible. So God, as we, um, as we head into this time of communion, would you... Would you rightly put on our hearts the requirements of the law, but also the graciousness of the gospel? And would we would live in such a way where we take your rules and your regulations seriously and rejoice in them the way that David did, but also com continually come back to your gospel and just are, are freshly overwhelmed um, with how gracious you are and how patient you are and how kind you are and what a good, good father you are. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So, um, so every week um, we, we get to take communion together. And this physical, tangible ritual um, is, is very similar to um, the rituals of the Old Testament of this is a teaching tool, okay? And this doesn't illustrate the law. This illustrates the gospel. And Jesus said to his friends on the night before he was executed, he says, this is my body. And it's going to be torn for you. 
ripped in half. And so what separated God from people will now come together. Okay. And then he, he took the cup and he says, this is, this is my blood that was shed for you. Right? I, was, I was crushed so that you could be refreshed. Okay. It's my perfection, my death that brought you intimacy with God. So every week, every week we're going to do these things. We're going to celebrate His body being torn and His blood being shed for people like us. Okay, People that failed over and over and over. And I got news for you. Uh, next week you're going to fail again. Right? I'm not trying to be Johnny Raincloud. I'm just saying like, Odds are, going to sin this week. But then we'll take communion again next week, and the week after, and the week after, and the week after, because we have a gracious, gracious God who is slow to anger and is patient with his knucklehead kids, right? So, if you're a believer this morning, this is for you. You don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to believe in the gospel. Um, so, why don't you just take a minute and just kind of reflect on where you are and um, think about these things. Think about the law. Think about the gospel. And when you're ready, come forward and receive communion.